Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. Here we are a week into the new year, 2020, and we hope uh, it's off to a good start for you. We have lots to talk about today. We're going to talk markets with Joe Camp, the manager of AgriVisor. We're going to talk about market facilitation program payments. Big story in 2019, and we're waiting to see how much of a story they will be in 2020 and what could be the long-term ramifications of those MFP payments. We're going to talk with Jonathan Coppice, Assistant Professor, Agricultural and Consumer Economics at the University of Illinois. And also today, we'll talk with the Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, John Newton, looking primarily at the dairy industry. Already now we have a couple of big names, a couple of big brands filing bankruptcy. Dean and Borden, big names, filing bankruptcy. What's behind that and what does that mean for the dairy industry moving forward? We'll talk about that with John Newton later in the program. But we're going to kick things off today with our good friend Todd Neely, reporter for DTN. Todd, good to talk with you. Thanks for joining us. You still there, Todd? I am. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. We're good. All right. So a lot of things happening on the renewable fuels front and, and some very interesting things. We continue to talk the, about these small refinery exemptions to the RFS. Now we have a, a refining company, and you've been reporting on this, that has received an exemption in the past, but when EPA now has rejected them for one, uh, they're filing a lawsuit. Yeah, it's uh, Suncor Energy, which uh, they own a couple of, basically it's two refineries out in Commerce City, Colorado, although uh, one of the the crux of the matter on this latest lawsuit is that EPA denied them uh, a request, a very recent request, because the company had basically uh, integrated two facilities into one, and so it it basically, uh, it made them not a small refinery. You know, the, the RFS requires... Uh, or it, it defines a small refinery as 75,000 barrels a day or less of production. And so when they combined the two facilities, it, it knocked that over 90,000. And so EPA had rejected that, um, and Suncor has now taken their, their case to the Court of Appeals in the Tenth Circuit. Um, and it will be interesting to see how this plays out because, uh, you know, EPA has really been taken to the woodshed by a lot of people in court um, <clears throat> about how it defines things in, in rules. Uh, some things are left undefined. And so uh, this case will be interesting because I think, uh, you know, it's going to raise some of those questions about uh, whether EPA uh, is sticking to its own rules and so on. It is really it really shows the Pandora's box that these exemptions have become and the way EPA has handled them. It's created a slippery slope, uh, basically left them open to attacks and criticism from both sides. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is, uh, as you know, there's been a lot of legal cases ongoing 
uh, from both sides, the biofuels industry as well as petroleum. Uh, in some cases, we've seen uh, biofuels and petroleum on the same side of the issue. Uh, you know, the support of these waivers isn't universal among both industries. And so uh, it definitely, uh, you know, I think somewhere down the road we're going to have to have a court really take a hard look at this, at, at this, uh, the way EPA does the, the small refinery waivers, um, if anything's to get changed. I, I don't see, uh, you know, with the current administration, you know, there's been a lot of talk, as you know, about making changes that, that actually that actually work. Um, but I, I do think that at some point a court's probably going to have to decide that. And this has been part of the criticism of EPA by the biofuels industry all along, that not only were the rules yeah. not transparent, but uh, no, you know, they seem to be a moving target. It, it seemed like EPA was coming up with different uh, criteria all the time. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and, and this latest issue involving, uh, you know, accounting for the waivers in the, in the upcoming rulemaking uh, that was actually finalized. Uh, you know, the biofuels industry, one of the actual gallons waived, uh, accounted for in an average of some sort, and. Uh, even as you know, among uh, among EPA and and the administration, we thought we had a biofuels deal that involved actually accounting for the wave gallons, and that didn't that didn't materialize. And so it it definitely EPA uh, has a lot of discretion, um, and I think uh, that's something that's probably in the end at some point going to come back and bite them. They're going to have to follow the law in some way, and I think, uh, like I said, I think a court's probably going to have to rule on this eventually. We're talking with DTN reporter Todd Neely. Todd, uh, you've been also doing some reporting on ethanol margins. Are they improving any after a tough 2019? Well, you know, Mike, I think it's something that uh, it definitely has moderated. You know, we saw uh, we have a hypothetical ethanol plant that we track, uh, basically the, the response to the, the daily markets, the corn and, and ethanol prices and so on. And, uh, you know, last year we had a point where, our hypothetical plant was reporting losses of 60 cents a gallon. I mean, it got really bad. Uh, since then, we've seen it improve. Uh, in the past month or so, uh, we have seen a slight decline in the margin, but uh, we've seen those those losses cut in half since it since it hit those lows. And so, it definitely, um, you know, I, it's definitely not a great situation yet, obviously. But um, I think uh, you know the ethanol industry is probably waiting for some really good trade news or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I don't know that we're going to hear good news from EPA when it comes to the RFS, but uh, definitely something in the market that might uh, spark these margins a little bit is definitely wanted. Probably more upside potential on the export front rather than the domestic front, because a China deal could really open that market up for the ethanol industry. Meanwhile, the biodiesel industry, I think, is looking to a big rebound year this year now that they have the uh, tax credit back. Oh, absolutely. You know, that that dollar blender's credit makes a gigantic difference. Um, You know, as it is now, biodiesel has a really hard time competing in the market um, and definitely having, you know, not just having the credit back for this year, but we've got it, uh, you know, we've got it retroactively. It's like a five-year, it's a five-year deal. And so I think uh, that probably has brought more stability policy-wise on that front with the with the tax credit than, than what the industry's ever seen. Um, you know, it's kind of been an annual thing where uh, it comes down to the last minute whether the, the industry is going to have a renewal of the tax credit. And uh, it seems like every year, December, November, around in there, we always have some sort of drama whether it's going to get done. But I think 
uh, I think for the time being, that drama has subsided. I, I think the five-year deal is probably going to help in the long term. Well, in a couple of weeks, I'll be in Tampa, Florida, broadcasting from the National Biodiesel uh, Conference. And even though they still have concerns as well about the small refinery exemptions, I think it'll be an upbeat meeting because of that uh, biodiesel tax credit being back on. So I look forward to that. All right, Todd, plenty going on. Good to talk with you. Thanks for the update. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you very much, Mike. Take care. DTN reporter Todd Neely. All right, up next, we're going to talk markets with Joe Camp, manager of AgriVisor, as we wait for what we think is going to be the signing of that phase one trade deal between the U.S. and China next week. How will the markets react to that? Have they already uh, worked that in, or will that be a a big psychological boost and we see a big bump or how will this play out we'll talk about that and other market matters as we kick off 2020 stay tuned more coming up here on aoa Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop, that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, let's talk markets. We're a week into the new year. Joining us now, Joe Camp, manager of AgriVisor. Joe, thanks for being with us. Uh, a week in, how do you... Uh, how do you describe the market so far? What's the what's the feeling? What's the mood? Good morning, Mike. I'm out here on the road trying to gauge the feel of the country, talking with farmers at the various market outlooks that AgriVisor will be putting on over the course of the next couple of months. And what I'm telling everybody is is how important, really, these two weeks, these, this week that we're in and the following week to come, how crucial they are for markets and what's to come for the start of 2020, because this week, the all-important crop reports coming up on Friday will have the crop production update. So this could include the next revision to acres and yield from the USDA. We've got the WASDE report, so we can see some adjustments to the demand side of the ledger. That will be particularly key now that we've signed a couple of trade deals or come close to signing a couple of trade deals. So we could see potentially some better export potential viewed by the government analysts. And then finally on Friday, a third report comes out at 11 a.m. Central, and that's the quarterly grain stocks report. So very key trio of reports coming up. The January reports can always produce some fireworks, and we're holding out some hope that we see some reduction to the supply side and, again, maybe some optimism on the demand side of things. And then next week I mentioned these trade deals and the potential trade signing. We've got this phase one meeting 
between representatives of U.S. and China, and it looks like we're going to try to put pen to paper here and sign this phase one. We'll be optimistic about the follow-through from the Chinese on those ag purchases. So a couple of very important weeks, I think, after a couple of months where we've just been saying, let's wait and see. Well, the time's finally here. We're going to see. Yeah, we got a lot to talk about here. Uh, we'll get back to the reports in just a moment. Let's let's talk about the uh, the trade deal with China if it is signed next week, as is expected. Now, will, how much of a market reaction will there be, or is this already kind of anticipated and built in? A little bit of both, from the sense that it's anticipated that we're going to get uh, a deal signed, and so we could get somewhat of a positive reaction because. Time and time again, we've come to this point where we thought we were close to coming to terms. It seems we're even closer than ever before. And so if we do finally get that handshake agreement next week, it's going to create some excitement. But not until really do we see the material follow through from the Chinese side of things will I think the price start to fully reflect this potential of increased export demand. But once that occurs, we'll watch every morning as we do, uh, in, as grain analysts, the 8 a.m. Central Flash Sales Report, where the USDA reports all sales of more than 100,000 tons. And if we come in each morning, every other morning, and get a good uh, sale to China, we're going to spark some optimism that I think can carry soybean prices and the rest of the grains higher. So next week could be mostly psychological because it won't. We probably still won't have details of just how much they might buy, when they might start buying it, ships actually moving, those types of things. That's when it really matters, but it could be a psychological boost. Exactly, and it's the follow-through that could sustain the boost or the move higher, but it's that follow-through that we're going to have to gauge to the extent and the depth. Normally at this time of the year, the Chinese start to switch their demand away from the U.S. We haven't had, of course, really good demand in the U.S. market because of the trade war, but it's this time of the year when they start to shift away from us and move into the Southern Hemisphere, the South American market, because we'll remind everybody that in just a few short weeks, the Brazilians are going to start cutting soybeans, and they'll have a big crop online to supply the world with, and so we're going to see if the trade flows adjust. I think they will to a certain extent. And that's why I'm optimistic about potential for markets is because I think China will be buying based off of promises rather than price. There's a lot of talk about whether China needs the beans at all with African swine fever, et cetera, whether they will come to the U.S. market because it's cheaper to supply these beans elsewhere, like namely South America. But at the end of the day, I think they're going to at least, if we can get this, uh, again, pen to paper here next week, they're going to follow through on some commitments at least uh, in the weeks or months of following this next week's signing. We're talking with AgriVisor Manager Joe Camp. All right, Joe, back to the reports that are coming out. And you said sometimes we get some January fireworks here. Uh, we've, we've got a, another factor in this year's reports, uh, the unknown of these unharvested acres that are out there. I mean, we still don't really have a handle on that production, do we? No, we don't. We're talking about big acres left unharvested in the upper plains, North North Dakota, upper Minnesota. That's something we've got to see factored in in Friday's report. What we'll see is that on the uh, harvested acres number, those can come down to reflect what we think we'll just uh, simply lose this year. And there's still maybe more to account for, not only for what was lost at harvest, but still yet what might not have been planted in the spring. 
mind you. Now, next will be how we factor in the unharvested acres that will eventually be picked, say, early next spring. Those will show up in the quarterly grain stocks report. The USDA is going to count those as on-farm stocks that they're intended to be harvested and that they'll eventually show up in the farmer's bin. But at the end of the day, it's going to create some confusion. And while this report will provide us a lot of uh, new information, It'll also provide some questions, too, that I think will stick with us throughout the rest of this marketing year, and we'll continue to look for these quarterly grain stocks reports and place high importance on these because they'll give us a gauge of what's actually out there, and that might vary widely from what we see in these final supply estimates uh, from the USDA come Friday. Joe, we've had this interesting situation for several weeks now where the the real market opportunity has not been on the board on the futures trade but out in the country with these basis uh, levels uh, as there's been this pulling back and forth uh, push and pull uh, markets needing grain but farmers holding on to it uh, waiting for you know prices that'll tempt them to to let go of it uh, do you see that going on for a while yet yeah, very stark this year is that contrast between the two markets, the futures market and the cash market. And that's why we're seeing lately still, you know, generally depressed futures prices. They've been up over the uh, past five weeks, but still at lower levels, uh, you know, long-term speaking. That, in contrast with basis at the, you know, relatively very firm levels, we're seeing that there's a difference between supply, what the USDA has on the balance sheet, and available supply, what the farmer has in their hands and they're willing to actually sell. And they have been reluctant to make marketing decisions here lately because they look at the board price. It is uh, lower than they'd like, and that means the basis is having to do the work and the cash buyer is having to really go out there and try to entice farmers with uh, better premiums here to get that grain flowing. What we'll see is if the board, if it does start to move higher as the speculators cover shorts and get a little bit friendly, do we see a backing off of the basis because corn starts to move as it normally does this time of the year? We get into a new tax year, we start to approach the next planning season, we have cash flow considerations. If we do have better futures prices, ultimately we could see some cash selling that could weigh on basis values just a touch. But for now, very key to notice that, as you uh, mentioned, basis strong and trying to do the work here. Hopefully futures can catch up. Well, kind of as a segue into my next segment where I'm going to be talking with Jonathan Kappas from the University of Illinois about MFP payments. They have factored into this as well because those MFP payments in some cases have allowed farmers to to hold on to their grain when otherwise they might have had to let go of it already. Yeah, we just uh, heard the latest data out that uh, farm income U.S.-wide will be up almost 10% this year over 2018, but that's somewhat masked or or very much so masked by these market facilitation payments because if not for the government issuance of these uh, two rounds of tariff aid payments and for some of the disaster relief payments that were issued out in the West in particular, then we would see net farm income having dropped this year by maybe 4% or more. So these payments have helped, and they, uh, as you indicate, are absolutely a factor in keeping the farmer uh, somewhat patient here and making sales. They're, they're, you're gonna, you know, the tighter on cash than they've been in a few years, but 
not so much so that they have to yet start dumping uh, grain to uh, generate that cash flow, although that could come. It is an interesting situation, and as you said, a lot's going to happen here in these next couple of weeks, and we'll be watching closely. Joe, thanks a lot. Uh, Safe travels to you. We'll talk again soon. As always, thanks. Goodbye. Take care. Joe Camp, manager of AgriVisor. So a lot of uh, reports coming out, a lot of numbers to look at, and hopefully a U.S.-China trade deal next week, all kinds of things going on. But these MFP payments, a big story in 2019, and it carries over into 2020. A lot of questions. Will there be another round of those payments? And they're starting to draw more and more scrutiny and uh, in some cases, criticism. We're going to talk about that with Jonathan Compass from the University of Illinois. That's coming up next. Stay with us on AOA. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices. But they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications. And it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. The patented pod shatter reduction technology canola hybrids from Invigor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. Contact your local BASF seed advisor today. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, one of the big stories of 2019 and is carried over into 2020, we just talked about its impact on markets, and that has been the uh, market facilitation program payments. And I want to talk about these and where we are here in early 2020 because there's a question about will there be another round of them and how an election year can certainly factor into that. But also... Uh, the bigger picture ramifications of these payments. Joining us now is Jonathan Coppas, Assistant Professor of Agricultural and Consumer Economics at the University of Illinois. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. Um, also, I've noticed more and more of these payments are starting to, to get some scrutiny and in some cases criticism uh, from various uh, uh, areas as uh, people look more closely at them, who's getting them, the amount of them, things like that. So this is going to be a story we'll be talking about for a while. Yeah. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. It will. I think it's safe to say anytime you uh, make payments of this size and caliber, they're going to get a lot of attention. And also, some of the things that we're looking into is just sort of what kind of impacts these this kind of operation, this MFP program, has on the future of you know farm programs and policy that, that that we typically see go through Congress in a farm bill. Well, I'm looking at numbers here saying USDA has paid out 10.75 billion with a B so far in 20 for 2019 production, sending checks to some 644,000 producers. There's no doubt 
uh, it made a big difference for a lot of producers struggling in 2019. They would have had a hard time any of them making it in 2019 without those checks. And as I just talked about in the last segment when we were talking markets, it enabled some farmers to hang on to grain that they would normally have had to, to sell at a lower price than they would have wanted. They were able to hang on to it because they had those MFP payments. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt you put that kind of uh, that kind of cash infusion into the countryside. There's there's no doubt it's going to help, and and it certainly is going to help at a time that um, you know farmers have been struggling for multiple years. But really, the the trade and tariff uh, moves by this administration has made it you know that much more difficult. And so, you know, there, there, nobody discounts the fact that these will help, and these are helping at a time of uh, of, of some real challenges financially and economically. Some are saying, critics of the program are saying, more is being uh, given out in in this program than the loss of markets actually warranted, saying uh, uh, more is, they're get, farmers are getting more from MFP than they would have if uh, there hadn't been a trade war with China. So that's the type of criticism these programs of this size will draw. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of the challenge of something like this is, uh, and this is one of the things where I think, and we've written about this, uh, kind of trying to push USDA to be more transparent and more open about how they got to these payment numbers, how they got these rates, because this is the kind of questions that come up. Uh, you know, are we overcompensating some producers? Are we matching the the payment to the damage or to the where the where the biggest issues are? And it's that transparency that we see in a congressional process we can dis- debate, discuss. But in this situation, USDA, you know, created this program and sent it out. And so it raises this, this set of questions. Um, and we don't have, frankly, a lot of answers or information around it that would help us understand better. Uh, and frankly, even maybe push back in some instances. But right now, yeah, it looks like we're, we're overcompensating some farmers or some crops in particular. Um, and that raises more and more questions about what we're doing uh, with this program and policy. And then there are stories now about how some of these payments are being rerouted to third parties, farmers uh, that, you know, are indebted to some uh, some group, and that money gets rerouted to them. That further, that further complicates the story. Yes. Uh, you're going to see more and more of these kind of stories, I would imagine, coming out including the, you know, some of these operations that are going to get incredibly large amounts of payments for single operations or some of these, you know, complex structures of LLCs and general partnerships. And, you know, these are some of the political problems, and this is why we have concerns about the impact of this program over the long haul for not just farmers. I mean, one of the things that, you know, we're concerned about is the impact on cash rent rates and the ability to adjust your, your costs but also just the political impacts of this kind of, this level of payment going out uh, and the potential that it, uh, that it allows for, you know, the bad stories, the, the individual bad actors, and there always will be bad, some bad actors in any program. You know, how much does that overtake uh, the other side of this or, you know, leave some lasting political damage for policies uh, in future debates? Yeah, those are big picture uh, issues that have to be looked at. We're talking with Jonathan Kampas, Assistant Professor, Agricultural and Consumer Economics at the University of Illinois. Jonathan, does does this impact even the writing of the next farm bill to some degree? So that's a great question and one that we have been wrestling with and debating uh, amongst ourselves just to try to understand that. Um, 
you know, it does raise questions about the impact on Congress uh, in trying to write another farm bill, whether it be the political ramifications of uh, the payments themselves, or the payments coupled with the USDA's move to cut the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. You know, that combination really messed up uh, the 2014 and 2018 farm bill debates in the House. So what does that do going forward? And just how does it look uh, if you're, you know, an interest group for commodities that got a better deal from USDA than you get from Congress? You know, how do you play this in the next farm bill debate? So I think it's going to have implications. I just, we struggle to try to map out exactly what, what those implications might be. And as we look at these compared to other forms of payments that have come from the government in the past, there are some big differences in how these have been handled than what we've seen with others. Yeah, I mean, we can't, it's hard to find any example uh, from the past. I mean, the closest I can come up with is the payment and kind program in 1983, where USDA unilaterally spends this kind of money, makes this kind of uh, direct assistance to farmers um, outside of the congressional process. Will these have any uh, WTO implications? Will we see challenges by other countries uh, because of these payments? So I think uh, that's another question that uh, some really great minds like uh, Dr. Glauber have been working on. I mean, I think it, I, don't have the, I don't have a good answer on that. I mean, I think the challenge is whether we're at, you know, there's a lot of questions around, we, do we hit our caps or go over the, the, the amounts we're permitted to, to spend? I think the bigger issue is just kind of how this uh, – Implicate or how this sort of impacts um, the future WTO operation, right? Whether we actually get a another cotton Brazilian cotton type case dispute or not, um, it certainly uh, complicates the concept of the WTO, right? That that then that goes from the tariff policies and the tariff back and forth with China, all the way down to this use of payments to sort of offset that move. It is all pretty contrary to what we were supposed to be agreeing to under the WTO. So, I, you know, I don't know if we we see that direct dispute, but I think we certainly see political implications of this going forward. Now, here we are into the new year, and it looks like we're about to get phase one of a U.S.-China deal signed next week, but we don't know how long that's going to take to actually uh, implement what will the levels be? We know it is a presidential election year. Uh, so the question is, will there be another round of these payments this year? <laughs> I mean, I think that is, uh, so we know we've got the third tranche of the 2019 payments still scheduled. And I think all expectations are those get made. Whether we see a 2020 version of this or not, um, and I think a lot of it depends on whether this phase one deal is, is real, uh, what it really ends up uh, accomplishing. Certainly, uh, you know, some of the research that, that some of my colleagues here have been doing, you know, that even if we don't hit the big, massive numbers of Chinese uh, imports, every little bit's going to help. It's going to help with the market situation. So, you know, what kind of improvement do we see around that? But you're right. It's an election year. It's going to be an intense and uh, uh, you know, hardly fought election year. And these payments, uh, while they have helped farmers and they've helped uh, in a tough time, I mean, they, they have very big political implications or political aspects to them. And so the politics of 2020 are going to play into that decision, I think, without a doubt. 
Yeah, you you referenced uh, the PIC program of the early 80s. For those of us uh, old enough to remember that, I mean, that was a historical uh, program that is, you know, still referenced today. And this will be similar, right? I mean, this is an almost an unprecedented type of program. Yeah, it's, it is uh, without historical analog. There's no other direct payment program initiated by USDA the way MFP has been. But the PIC program was at a time of, uh, of the 80s economic crisis, and they were trying to we were oversupplied. You're trying to pull acres out of production and use surplus supply to try to offset the, the economic hit. So they don't match up completely, but there are similar aspects to it. And, yeah, like you said, it, these kind of, even if it's a one-off issue or a two-off issue in MFP's case, they have long-term uh, impacts on policy and policy debates going forward. Yeah, we'll be talking about them for some time to come, I'm sure. <laughs> Jonathan, good to talk with Thank you again. You. Thanks a lot. We appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate talking to you, and uh, keep after it. All right. Take care. Jonathan Coppas, Assistant Professor, Agricultural and Consumer Economics at the University of Illinois. All right. Coming up next, we're going to talk with the Chief Economist of the American Farm Bureau Federation, John Newton. Look at the dairy industry and the dairy market and what's going on there. A couple of big brands, a couple of big names, Dean and Borden, filing for bankruptcy. Why and what's that mean for the uh, dairy industry moving forward? And has the introduction of all these plant-based products into the market, has that caused this? Has it had a part to play in it? And what's ahead? We'll talk about that next. Stay with us on AOA. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a Credence soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, Credence soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized Credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Some measure success by Italian suits, corner offices, and luxury yachts. Farmers measure success differently. It's breathing fresh country air, taking care of the people you love, and knowing how to measure success in your soybean acres? That's smart. With Credence soybeans, you get a precise variety bred to fit your acres. And that Credence variety comes with agronomic expertise and local insights from your BASF team. So plant your sign of success. Talk to your authorized Credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, Borden Dairy Company is the second major milk producer to file for bankruptcy in the last two months, joining Dean Foods, the largest U.S. dairy company. Now, Borden's does still plan to uh, uh, stay in business, but Dean Foods intends to sell its assets. Uh, so these are a couple of big names, and what what's behind it, and what does it mean moving forward? Joining us now is John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. John, thanks for joining us. When you have major brand names like this filing for bankruptcy, it has to has to wave some red flags, doesn't it? Well, well, first of all, Mike, you know, happy New Year to you, and I'm I'm glad to be on and. 
And you're exactly right. This does raise some red flags when you look at what happened with, with Dean Foods in 2019 and now uh, with Borden in 2020. It, it really makes you think that, that dairy may be uh, at an inflection point when you think about the Class 1 market and, and where the, the trends have been uh, for fluid milk sales over the last few decades. How much of an impact are the plant-based products now on the market uh, having on this? Do you think that's a major factor? Well, I think, you know, when you look at the dairy case, it's just getting more and more competitive. It's it's plant-based beverages. It's bottled water. Uh, it's consumer structural changes in how they consume dairy products. All of those are, are, are certainly a factor in, in both the Dean and Borden situation. I think the reality is, Mike, that, that U.S. consumers are consuming more and more dairy products every single year. It just doesn't happen to be in a bottle. It's in cheese, yogurt, butters. That's where people are getting their dairy consumption, their dairy proteins today. So so what do you see moving forward? What's the impact of these two announcements? You know, I think that one of the more important things uh, that, that needs to happen, you know, these dairy farms, those cows need to get milk. They need a home for the, that milk. And so we need to make sure that, that farmers have uh, markets to sell their milk in. And then I think, you know, it's it's time to really think about uh, how the dairy industry views uh, fluid milk. We've got a federal milk marketing order program uh, that's put Class One milk on a pedestal for some 80 years. It's the golden goose. Uh, and we've been riding that horse for a long time, keeping Class One milk the highest value product. Uh, maybe it's time to rethink that. So as we look ahead then for 2020, what's your outlook for dairy prices? Well, we've certainly seen uh, dairy prices recover from, from the, the, the last four or five years. Uh, we saw Class Three milk, you know, around $20. Uh, there, there is some weakness uh, moving into the spring flush, but that's, that's normal uh, going into the flush period. But, uh, you know, I think the, the export market is, is certainly one to, to keep an eye on. African swine fever in China is one to keep an eye on. Uh, the, the, the fire and drought conditions in Australia is also, also something uh, to continue to monitor. But I think it's real important for folks with prices having moved up a little bit is to get a little proactive in your risk management. Uh, dairy revenue protections for sale every single day. And already we've got about 30 billion pounds of milk covered uh, for 2020. So get out there and, and be proactive and lock in uh, some of these prices before they potentially go lower. That is one part of this. We now have more options available in in these programs to help uh, farmers, uh, dairy farmers deal with these conditions. You certainly do. I mean, you saw how successful uh, the dairy margin coverage program was uh, in 2019. I mean, producers did have through September uh, to sign up, and they could sign up retroactively. I think DMC sign up was uh, rather disappointing for 2020, but that's that's to be expected given uh, the price outlook that we have currently. But I think a lot of folks uh, saw the high milk prices that we have and, and really locked in uh, using dairy revenue protection. So if, if folks haven't done so already, I'd really encourage uh, them to put a risk management plan in place. And you can get a lot of information at dairyrp.com. John, moving forward, not just for the dairy industry, uh, but looking at the livestock industry for the protein sector, uh, what do you see ahead? Uh, Impossible Foods is a company that developed the Impossible Burger. It's now, they're saying they're going to add pork and sausage to their lineup. We're going to talk about this with the pork industry tomorrow. 
But uh, officials with that company have made it very clear that their mission is to completely replace animals in the global food system. How should uh, agriculture respond to that, you think? Well, I think, Mike, you and I both know uh, that's not going to happen. I, for one, will continue to eat meat uh, for the rest of my life. Uh, But this isn't going away. Animal or plant-based proteins are going to be here to stay. I think the important thing is to make sure that consumers have uh, the right information when they're at the grocery store. Uh, These products are strategically placed uh, directly next to uh, real protein products, real meat products, real dairy products. I think we need to look at the labeling of these products. Those are... Uh, critical things to, from a regulatory perspective to work on uh, because these products aren't going away. It's, it's important now that consumers have accurate information on not only what they're consuming but the nutritional content of that product as well. Yeah, this certainly is going to be a long-term battle, but I, I think there, the in, that industry is, is showing its, uh, its game plan here. I mean, the, the uh, CEO and founder of Impossible Foods also said, he made a prediction. By 2035, animals as a food production technology are going to be history. That's hard to believe. It, 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 you know, I, I frankly don't, don't believe it. I don't buy it. Uh, I think that uh, animal proteins and plant-based proteins, uh, again, they're both here to stay. Uh, you see a lot of major food companies in, investing in plant-based proteins. They're investing in uh, hybrid products that have plant-based proteins mixed with animal proteins. Uh, so, again, I think it's important that we label these products appropriately. Uh, consumers need to know that, that they may actually not be nutritionally equivalent. Uh, so I think it's just a matter of, of making sure that consumers are well-informed. Uh, and then we also need to look and pay attention to cell-based proteins as well because those are on the horizon. Yeah, I, it's it's a challenge. It's going to be here, for, as you said, this, these are not going to go away, and uh, the the livestock industry will have to respond, I think, and they're starting to do that. We're going to talk more about that coming up in tomorrow's program, but this is going to be a story indeed to watch. Well, John, always good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. Again, Happy New Year, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. You bet. Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, John Newton. Yeah, we'll hear from the National Pork Producers Council tomorrow about uh, their reaction to what's being said by officials at uh, Impossible Foods. Hope you'll join us for that and more tomorrow right here on AOA.